Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. We've been doing a series in the book of Acts, and we've covered a lot of ground. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 15. Paul has gone on his first missionary journey. He comes back to Antioch, the the city where he he launched out from. And when he gets there, there's some people that start teaching that in order to truly be saved, you don't just need to know Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. This, This causes a major problem. They argue about it. They decide, well, let's go to Jerusalem where these people supposedly came from. Let's check with the church leaders. So that's what they do. They go back to, to Jerusalem. They're having conversations now. Now people are saying you need to know Jesus and not just be circumcised, but you also need to know Jesus, be circumcised, and follow the entirety of the Old Testament law. And so, you know, kind of what, how is a person really saved? What, what all do they need to do? We need to get clear on that. And so they pray about it. The church leaders talk about it. And they come up with it. what they said seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit, that you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow the, the Jewish law, that you just need to to trust Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. Praise God. Amen? And so they send a letter back to Antioch and say, hey, here's what we're wanting you to do. And we, we, we talked about that. We talked about this incredible picture of the tabernacle of David and this passage of scripture from the Old Testament. Uh, just this beautiful picture of a covenant that you and I get get to be a part of. And so Paul is part of this team that takes the letter back to Antioch. And from there, he launches his second missionary journey. And that's where we're going to pick things up in Acts chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16. And I'll start reading in verse one. It says this, Paul went first to Derbe and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. So Paul starts missionary trip number two. He's going to start traveling all over the world, telling people the good news. He goes to Lystra, he gets to the second city, Derby, and he meets this young guy named Timothy. And he decides he wants Timothy to be a part of his ministry team. He wants Timothy to travel with him, be a part of his group that goes around. Now, what was it about Timothy that made Paul desire to have him be part of his team because Paul's meeting all kinds of people. He's, he's, you know, meeting hundreds, if not thousands of people as he's traveling around. What was it about Timothy that he said, I I want this guy to come with me and be a part of, of what God is doing? Well, all we really know about him is it says that the churches spoke well of him, or another translation says that he had a good reputation that his reputation in the church, his involvement, his serving, opened the door for this incredible opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity when the Apostle Paul says, hey, I want you to to be a part of what God's doing in my ministry and help spread the gospel across the, the known world. What opened up that opportunity 
was his involvement and the way that he served in the local church. And we don't realize this the way that we should realize it, and I'm hoping to make progress on it this morning, that the way that we engage in the local church is enormously important. That the way that we serve, that the local church is a proving ground that can open up new opportunities for us and really help us keep stay on track for the plan that God has in our lives. And that's the way it played out in Timothy's life that he became a major part of Paul's ministry. He had a key role in establishing the church, the early church. Paul left him in Ephesus to help set up how that church was gonna be, gonna be run. We have letters that were written between Paul and Timothy that are still a blessing to us today. Has anyone ever read First or Second Timothy and God spoke to you and ministered to you? I mean, there's some beautiful, powerful passages in, in those letters to, to Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. The passages of scripture, like when he said, don't let anyone look down on you because of your age, but be an example to the believers in the way that you conduct yourself in righteousness and holiness. These amazing passages that all came about as, as a result of this relationship with Paul and Timothy. And the basis of this relationship forming in the first place was the fact that Timothy had a good reputation because of the way that he served in the early church. You and I can learn from this. Who knows what all God wants to do in your life? Who knows what all he wants to do through your life, but a launching pad, a basis of it, is the way that we serve in the early church. Or in the, it's a little, little past that. We missed that opportunity. So the way we serve in the local church. You know, you can imagine Timothy as a young man, maybe having dreams of things that he wanted to do in his life. Man, I would love to travel. I'd like to get out of Leicester someday. I want to see the world. I want to go and be a part of something big. I want to do something significant. And I don't have any connections. I don't see any way out of this, out of this town. It didn't seem like a, a, a reality for him. So what did he do? He started pouring himself into the local church. He started serving. And it was from that that God, God opened up the doors to take those, those next steps. He, he was serving in the local church, serving in kids' ministry, doing puppet shows, handing out snacks. Maybe he served as a greeter or in production. He's running sound and lights. And the, it, that's what he was doing. And he wasn't just serving. He was serving with excellence because it said that he had a good reputation. You know how you get a good reputation? Not by being scheduled to serve and not showing up. You don't get a good reputation that way. Or when you do serve, you do it half-hearted and you don't do a really good job and more of a liability than a help. He developed a good reputation by being the kind of guy that when you needed someone to serve, man, Timothy, he's serious about this. Timothy's the guy that you can put in that spot and he's gonna, get, he's gonna be there, you can count on him and he's gonna do an excellent job. That's how you develop a good reputation and that, that's what Timothy was doing. The way that you serve in the body of Christ, it matters, it's important. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter nine verse 10. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might or with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. There's going to come a point in time where your opportunity to, to serve and build the body of Christ, that, that opportunity comes and then it goes. All of us are going to end up in the grave. And once you get there, it's too late to work. So he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with your strength. Put your heart into it. Put some effort into it. Wherever you find a spot to serve in the body of Christ, in the parking lot, making coffee, being an usher, serving in youth on Wednesday nights, whatever it is, put your heart into it. Serve with all of your might. And this isn't just an Old Testament principle. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. 
And whatever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, we have an amazing dream team, and I'm thankful. But you know, we can always get better. We, we want to be excellent, and the nature of excellence is it doesn't remain the same. I mean, we've got room to improve. We, we've got some amazing people that do an outstanding job, so I'm not trying to come down on us. I'm just trying to learn from the example of Timothy, and we, we can always get better, and we want to continue to excel. The nature of excellence is that it continues to get better and better. Because what's excellent today is average tomorrow. That we want to continue to improve and get better and get better. So we've got some amazing people that are serving. We, we want to grow. And we've got some people that haven't found a spot to serve. It says, what, whatever you do, do it heartily and do it as unto the Lord. Do you know that it's a privilege to serve in the house of God? You don't? It is a blessing to serve in God's house. It really is. Not just that we know that's the right answer. We've got to change our perspective to really understanding that and seeing it that way because that's the reality. It is a blessing to serve in God's house. It's a blessing to be involved. You know, I, I hear people say sometimes when they're, when they're gonna be serving, oh, I have, to, I have to serve in the nursery tomorrow. Uh, I, I have to be in the parking lot next week. Oh, I just got the schedule. I, I have to serve with the kids in a couple of weeks. It's not a have to, it's a get to. I, I make this correction in my own family. I, 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 you get to. It, and it sounds like a small thing. That perspective change is enormous. It changes the way that we go about it. Oh, I have to do this. I guess I'll do my fair share of, of shouldering the load here. No, what a blessing it is to serve in God's house. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Someone that gives not just financially, of their time, of their ability. They engage. Man, I'm glad to do this because I understand it is a blessing. And it says to do it as unto the Lord that it's Jesus that we're serving. That, that, that has to be our perspective, not because it just makes it easier, because that's reality. Well, those people ought to just be happy that I'm serving at all. They'd be happy that I'm coming in there. But you, you know you're not serving me. You're not serving Pastor Jonathan or Pastor Josiah. You're not serving Miss Stacy in the kids' ministry. We're serving Jesus. We're serving Jesus. And that changes the way that we engage. If I understand I'm serving Jesus, I'm showing up. I'm doing a great job. I'm not just going through the motions because I, I was on the schedule and they keep trying to get us to serve. It's an opportunity. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to serve in God's house. Listen to what it says in Psalm 48, verse 10. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. Now, that's what the Bible says. Does everyone believe that the Bible is true? We're all on the same page there, that if the Bible says it, it's not just pleasantries. It's not like we're reading a greeting card or something. We're just saying flowery, nice-sounding things. The Bible is actually true. We're on the same page. If the Bible is true, it's telling us that a day in the house of God is better than a thousand days anywhere else. That's what it says, right? That's not just trying to compliment God's house. It's telling us a reality. Being in God's house is better than a thousand, a th three years, right? Three years anywhere else. That means a day in God's house is better than a day at the beach. 
It's better than a day sleeping in. It's better to be here than a day out camping in the woods someplace, right? That's that's what it says. So it's a smart person that chooses the better thing over the thing that isn't isn't as good, right? If we want to be wise people, we choose what is better over what isn't as good as what is best. And a day in God's house is better than a thousand days anywhere else, even Tiger Lake. It's better. Being here is better. That's what, the Bible, that's what the Bible says. A day in God's house is better. Now, I'm not against vacation. I'm not against that. Vacations are wonderful. Take nice, take nice vacations. But you know, when you go on vacation, what I would encourage you to do on Sunday? Be in God's house. Because a day in the house of God is better than a thousand days any, anywhere else. Wherever you're going on vacation, there's a church somewhere around there. Find out where it is, when it is, and get in God's house. Because a A day in God's house is better. Now notice how he expresses his love for God's house. How he expresses it is, I would rather be a doorkeeper. He starts talking about serving. That expressing his love and how much he loves God and he loves his presence and he loves his house, he expresses it by his willingness to serve. The house of God, serving in God's house, is a proving ground. That's what we're talking about with the life of of Timothy. Because it's one thing to say it, Man, your house is better. I love your presence. Even when we sing songs, God, I would do anything for you. You're so wonderful. I give you my my life. Well, that's just words, and words are fine, but we want to prove them by our actions. When you've got someone that says, God, I'd do anything for you. Lord, I love your presence. My life is completely yours. Then after service, hey, would you mind helping out with this outreach? Hey, would you you get involved and serve with the toddlers? What are you, crazy? No, No way I'm doing that. Well, you're just telling the Lord how you do anything for them. So it's, one, it's just lip service unless it's backed up by actions in our lives. Amen? Amen? It's a blessing to serve the Lord. And so Timothy proved himself in the local church. You know, we quote from Psalm 92 every week. Those who are planted in the house of God flourish. That they don't stay the same. Things develop. That the house of God is like a soil that when you plant yourself in, it opens up your, your potential and what God, what God has for you. What, what if Timothy hadn't been involved at all in the local church? What would have happened? Paul comes to town. He's looking for someone. He's looking to give an opportunity. Nobody has anything good to say about this guy. They hardly know who he is. He goes on to the next town, and Timothy's opportunity has come, has come and gone. But the house of God is an opportunity for you to get planted and established, get involved, get involved and serve. It's a soil that when you engage in it with all of your heart, with all of your might, that your life begins to flourish. And Timothy is an example of that. That when you are serving, you know what you're doing? You're helping to build the church. Whether you're parking lot, greeting, sound, lights, whatever, coming in during the week and helping out in the office, as you serve, you are helping to build the church, which happens to be Jesus' personal mission statement. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as you engage in helping to build the church, what you are doing is you're linking up and aligning yourself with the heart of Jesus. Jesus, what you want, I'm I'm gonna pitch in. And you know, when you've got a task to do and somebody joins themselves to help a accomplish that task, they, they endear themselves to the person whose task it was, right? If, if one day you came in the church and Tom, who takes care of our facilities here, he's out there and he's trying to mop that, that, that big lobby and you just grabbed the mop and you started, you started mopping too, he would look over and you know what he would do? 
smile and nod. He's, he would be grateful to the fact that his task, you took it upon yourself to help him with what he was trying to accomplish. Have you ever had anyone pitch in and try, help you with something that you had around the house or some big job that you had to do? This past spring when we were doing the revival services, I had this giant tree fall across my driveway. So, you know, we're, we're hosting an evangelist. We've got a lot going on. I've got this enormous oak tree laying across my driveway. So I had a task to try to get this thing cleared out so I could, so I could leave my house. Well, that, that was my task. That was my job. There were, there were several guys from the church that came and helped cut up that tree and, and clear it out. It, it didn't concern them. That, that, was, that was my driveway, my house, my, my work to be done. But they came and they took it upon themselves to help me with my task. That, that's been months ago. You know, I still think of that and still try to come up with ways that I can, I can bless them, looking for opportunities. Man, whenever they need something, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna jump in. They endeared themselves to me because they helped with my task. Now think about joining yourself with the task of Jesus that if he said, I'm gonna build this thing, I'm gonna build this thing, it's not gonna fail, it's not gonna fall, I'm gonna build this church, it's gonna continue to increase. If you took that same stance, what if all of us adopted Jesus' mission statement and said, I'm gonna build this thing, I'm going to help build the church, I'm gonna find something, to put my hand to. I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to serve. I'm going to help build this church. If this is where you have me planted, God, I'm all in. I am going to help build this thing. You'd be talking like Jesus. You'd be aligning yourself to him, and you'd also be endearing yourself to him. I'm telling you, when people help me, I'm looking for ways to bless them, and I believe that Jesus is the same way. Amen? What would it look like if every person in our church family served, and when they served, they did it with excellence, and they really cared about, I am helping Jesus to build his church. Because when you serve, that's exactly what you're doing. Amen? So that, that, that's how Timothy ended up stepping into God's plan for his life, was being faithful in the small things, serving, proving himself through his service in the church, and God continued to guide him and direct him. So Paul latches on to him, says, I want you to come with me. Oh, but before we go, there's something I want you to do. Have you heard of circumcision? Well, I, I'd like you to do that which can be confusing for people because in the previous chapter, they just decided you don't have to do this anymore. They just took a letter and said, no, you don't have to get circumcised. And then Paul grabs Timothy and, and makes him get circumcised. Why, why did he do that? Well, he didn't do it because circumcision has any merit in salvation. He did it as a way of laying down his own freedoms in order to minister to other people. Let, let me read you from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 20. You can kind of see Paul's philosophy here that goes with what happens in Acts chapter 16, verse 20. It says this, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. This is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 16. That in order to minister to Jewish people, he said, I submit myself to Jewish law, even, even though I'm not subject to it, I'm free from it, but I submit myself to it so I can reach people for Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles, I live like a Gentile so I can reach them for Christ. 
Now, when he says, when I'm with the Gentiles, I live like a Gentile, he's careful to add, but I, I obey the law of God. I follow the law of Christ. That it's not an excuse to engage in sin and then dismiss it as I'm trying, I'm trying to reach people. Because you hear people talk crazy like that. Well, the reason I go out to the bars and get drunk is that's my mission field. No, we, we don't cross the line of sin. We're called to walk in holiness and righteousness. And so we don't compromise on that. You don't reach people by getting yourself into sin. I've heard people talk all kinds of craziness. I've heard people justify living promiscuous lifestyle, sleeping around as a, as a way of reaching people, reaching people for Christ. So Paul's careful to say, listen, we, we draw a line. We'll do anything short of sin in order to reach people, but that's a line we're not, we're not willing to cross. But that gives us understanding into why in the world did he just say, we, we don't have to get circumcised and make this young guy get circumcised because it's, it's really almost a theme of Acts chapter 16, that it, it's, it's not about me. It's not about what's best for me. He lays down a freedom in order to reach other people. It's not about me. Amen? It's not about you. Amen? How can I, how can I be used to advance the kingdom of God? And it's really a blessing to take that mindset because God knows as long as you are the one that's on your heart and your mind, you'll never really be happy. And so even God instructing us to think of other people and lay down our rights for the benefit of somebody else, even that is for your own benefit because people that get ingrown just thinking about themselves all the time, that, that's not a healthy way to live. So even thinking of others over yourself is what, what's best for you. And God's wisdom is, is so beautiful and so, and so wonderful, and we would be wise to accept it. Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it says, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then, coming to the border of Mysia, they headed north to the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision, a man from Macedonia in northern Greece, was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. So they start traveling, but there's a couple of directions that the spirit of Jesus stopped them from going. Nope, don't go this way. Nope, I don't want you going over there. And then gave them a dream, a vision of someone pleading with them to come to Macedonia. Now he's Paul's wanting to go to these places for what purpose? To tell them about Jesus, to, to carry out his work of an apostle. He's going to go there. He's going to go there. You would think if that's his motive, he just wants to go and tell people about Jesus. Why not just let him go? Let, let him go be an apostle over there. Let him go be an apostle there. Go apostle here, apostle there. What, what difference does it make? But as he was carrying out God's general will for his life, there was also a specific will, a specific place, a specific time. That as he was working to carry out his assignment, he was getting increasing clarity on the exact thing God would have him do and when he would have him do it. And the same thing is true for your life. There's a general will for your life, but there's also a specific will for your life. And the way that you get the specifics on where God wants you to go and what he wants you to do is to submit yourself to the general will for your life. Because if you're disobedient in the general stuff, be a faithful spouse, 
Walk in holiness and righteousness. Be kind. Don't lie. If you're not willing to submit to the general will, then, then God's not going to start opening up more specifics for you to disobey those as well. The way you qualify for specific direction is to obey God's general direction. And he received it by going. He received it by doing. It opened up to him as he was busying himself with serving how he knew to serve. Then, then the, the specifics started to open up to him. So he responds. He goes to Macedonia. The first city they come to is Philippi, which the Philippian church was a result of this vision that he had to go to Macedonia. They get there. We'll pick it up in verse 16. It says, one day, let me read it in another translation. Acts chapter 16, verse 16 says this. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master much profit by fortune telling. They meet this girl. She's a slave girl. She's got a demonic spirit that enables her to tell people's fortunes. She's making her, her owners a fortune as she's doing it. And she latches on to Paul and Silas and she starts to harass them. And it says that this went on for several days until Paul just got fed up and he turns around, he rebukes that demon spirit and it leaves her, which you'd think would be amazing. You'd think people would be thankful. This girl just got found freedom. But instead, her owner is upset because he had a little, a little side hustle going, making money off of this girl. And now that, that's, that's over. So it says that he dragged, he drugged Paul and Silas into the market. He starts stirring people up against, against them. A mob starts to form. It's where we'll pick it up in verse 22. It says, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. And the city officials order them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. So they're dragged into the marketplace. A mob forms. They strip these men in front of everyone. They, they begin to beat them severely with wooden rods. Their, their backs are laid open. They take them to, to prison say, don't let these men escape. So they don't just put them in prison. They put them in the innermost dungeon. And when they're in the innermost dungeon, they, they clamp them up, lock them in stocks, which Roman stocks were designed, one, so the prisoners couldn't escape, but two, to make the, the prisoners as miserable as possible. The Romans had a, a unique talent for inflicting pain. So the way that they were created was to, to spread your legs and to, to, to put you in a position that would cause agony and even the angles of your ankles would feel like your ankles were breaking. So they're in this position, their backs are laid open, they're beaten. Now, th this is an opportunity to be discouraged. Correct? If you can imagine yourself, have you ever been discouraged? Things don't go your way. You start feeling a little blue. You get, you get discouraged. Well, if you were in their situation, you might feel the same temptation to be a little bit discouraged. You said, I'm going to, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to travel to tell people about Jesus. So you're going to do that. You meet this young girl who's got a, a demon and you set her free, which would be a, a great highlight reel for your ministry a testimony, but instead of people celebrating in response to the, your ministry, they beat you severely. And then they throw you in a dungeon and they make sure you're as miserable as possible. And you're sitting in that dungeon. Look, look how they respond in verse 25. 
says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. So they're in this dungeon, they're in these stocks, they're sitting there in this damp, nasty dungeon, backs bleeding, legs feel like they're being pulled off of them, and what, what do they do? It says that they do two things, that they start praying, they're praying, and they're singing hymns. One translation says, singing hymns of praise. Now, this is an opportunity to be discouraged, but instead of giving in to that temptation, they do something different. One, one, they were taking time to pray. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about prayer. I won't take time to read it, but even just the introduction to that parable gives us some, some significant insight. Luke chapter 18, verse one, it says, then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. He's about to tell a parable that tells us the frequency of prayer. How often should men pray? Always, always. That men ought to always pray and not lose heart. One translation says, and not faint. It means, it means to get discouraged. It means to give up. That if you're, you're walking along, if you're walking on a journey and you faint, you pass out, it means that you, you got weak, you were overcome by the task at hand, you weren't able to do it, and you just kind of, your, your body gave up, you, you, you fainted. So men ought always to pray and not faint, not be discouraged, not lose heart, not give up. So th that lets us know that the opposite, the opposite of being prayerful, what's the opposite of being prayerful? It's not being prayerless. The opposite of prayerful is not prayerless. The opposite of prayerful is fainting, is giving up, is losing heart, is becoming discouraged. So when Jesus instructs us, you need to always be praying. His concern isn't just making sure that you aren't prayerless. His concern is making sure that you don't get overtaken by the task at hand. His concern isn't just filling up the, the prayer schedule. His concern is that you don't lose heart, that you won't faint, that you won't give up, that you won't get discouraged. The opposite of prayerless is a prayerful isn't prayerless. The opposite of prayerful is people giving up, getting discouraged in what God has called them to do. So maybe you're here and you experience discouragement in your walk with the Lord. You feel like, man, I've just kind of lost heart. I've lost zeal. I've lost passion. I feel like giving up, or maybe you have given up. What's going on in my walk with the Lord where it just feels like so difficult? If you are, if you are not a prayerful person, then you are going to be a discouraged person. If you are not a prayerful person, then you're going to be a person that finds it very difficult to keep going, that you're going to lose heart, that you're probably going to faint at some point. That's why Jesus told them a parable that men ought to always pray. Why? Why always pray? So you won't give up. You won't faint. The enemy won't be able to take you out. That's why those who, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. Not up with wings like eagles. They run and don't get weary. They walk, and what happens? They don't, they don't faint. They don't faint. But it takes people willing to engage in prayer, to wait on the Lord. Men ought to always pray. So these men thrown in prison understood the temptation to fall into discouragement. And how you don't fall into discouragement, we've got to be people that at all times are praying. That's what Jesus taught. They understood that. So they're in this prison, in this dungeon, in these stocks, in this pain, and they're taking time to pray, one, and also to sing praises to the Lord. They're praising the Lord. And it says other people could hear them. It was coming out of their mouth. It was audible. People are listening. You can hear toes tapping in the dungeon. 
it's important that we open our mouths and we praise the Lord. Not just, you can't see it, but in here, in here there's praise. In here there's praise. Now, they, the people could hear them. They opened their mouth. They, they, they were listening, right? They could hear him praying. They, they could hear him praising the Lord. Look, look what happens next. Verse 26 says, suddenly, suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains and the chains of every prisoner fell off. That they're praying, they're singing hymns of praise to the Lord, and suddenly there's an earthquake that shakes the place. All the chains fall off, of, of not just them, everyone in the prison. All the doors swing open. Now, there's a sequence that I wanna pay attention to here. They're praying, they're singing, then there's a flow of God's power. And I've never really noticed this before, but, but listen to these next verses. What happens next? Verse 27 says, the jailer woke up to see the prison doors were wide open. He assumed that the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself, but Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. I'd never really noticed this before that the doors swung open, the chains, the chains fall off. That, that freedom wasn't just for them. That, they didn't just run away. Their freedom wasn't so they could escape into the night because they stayed put. The, even the jailer, the jailer assumed that they would have escaped, which is a fair assumption. And I guess I assume that same thing, that, that, that what happened was so they could get out of there. The next day, the police come and say, hey, you guys are free to go. The jailer tells them, hey, good news. The officials say you're, you're free to go. So, so they didn't really need the doors to be open to be out the next morning because they, they were told they could go. And when they're told they could go, what does Paul say? Uh-uh. You tell them to come and, and release this themselves. So even when they're told you're free to go, he says, no, I'm not going anywhere. You go tell them they can come and get us out themselves. So the doors coming open and the chains falling off weren't just for Paul and Silas. That something happened because of that freedom that began to affect everyone else in the situation. Verse 30, then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? that their liberation was so dramatic. What God had done for them was so profound that it stirred up a question on the inside. What kind of questions would you have wanted to ask if you were the jailer? If you were the jailer in the middle of the night, you got up and found all of the doors in your jail were open and everyone's chains were off. What kind of things would you ask? I can think of a list of questions. 
Like what, what in the world is going on here? How did this happen? Who opened these doors? Who has a key? What, you know, what, what, what is going on? You'd have all kinds of questions. Why there's a bunch of prisoners with the doors open, the chains off, and just like standing around in the dark and you bring the light in and there's just a bunch of prisoners standing there. You'd have all kinds of questions. I know I would, but listen to the one question he asked. He doesn't mention any of those things. Again, what God had done was so dramatic that the question that rose up in his heart was simply, what must I do to be saved? That there was something supernatural going on that stirred up on the inside. The kind of freedom that I see is affecting me down on the inside. And the only thing I'm curious about, the only thing I really want to know is how can I know Jesus? How can I have what you guys have? How can I experience the power that I know is operating in you and for you? And I can see it's on your life. God wants each person here to have that same kind of freedom. Such a dramatic level level of liberty that the people around you, of all the questions they might ask, the one that rises to the surface is, I just, I just want to know what I need to do to be saved. That their freedom wasn't just about them. The kind of freedom God wants you to have, and he does want you to have freedom. And I believe people can experience freedom here this morning in Jesus' name. But your freedom isn't just about you. God wants you to walk in such a dramatic kind of freedom that it affects the people around you, and other people are drawn into the kingdom. That's the way things work in the kingdom. It's not just about you. It's what God wants to do through you. You know, even when people talk like that, hey, when we get to heaven, I know I'll be free when I get to heaven. Well, you will be free when I get to heaven. Well, I know I'll be healed when I get to heaven. Thank God that that's, that's true. But let's not put off to heaven what God wants to do now. Because getting set free here is a testimony here. Getting set free here does other people good here. Just, just beside, It's not just about you. And if you're willing to wait until you get to heaven, well, that's great for you, but it doesn't do the other people here that could benefit from seeing what God's doing in you and through you. It, it wouldn't have done the, the jailer any good for Paul to say, hey, someday I know I'll be free. No, your freedom affects people around you. And the nature of what God wants to do, the way his kingdom functions, is that as soon as you get saved, as soon as you experience freedom, now it's about someone else. The, the jailer even got this. He got saved. What, what, what's he doing moments later? It says, even at that hour, he cared for them and washed their wounds. He, they, they had wounds the entire time. Something happened in his life that all of a sudden he knew, man, I got to start pouring in. I got to be a blessing to someone. And what God did in my life, I, I want to minister. He, he's, he's washing their wounds. It says that he fixed them. It's one or two in the morning. He fixes them a meal. Who eats at two in the morning? He just, he was moved to do something. You, you see this all through the New Testament. When people are saved, they begin to pour into other people. That, that's, that's the way that it's supposed to work. Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew chapter eight, she had a fever and Jesus came to the house. And he rebukes the fever. What does she do immediately? She immediately got up and prepared a meal for them. That you're, you're healed, you're set free, you're saved, not just for you, you're saved to serve. You're saved to be a blessing. You're saved to allow God to use you. And again, it's not, even that is for you because God knows you'll never be fulfilled if you're always just about you. When your heart becomes, how can I be a blessing to someone else? That's when you really know fulfillment in life. The enemy wants to get you focused on you. Look what happens. So there's a flow of God's power. They get free. Other people get saved. People are getting baptized. Verse 35. It says, the next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials 
have said, you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. And we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. Can you see what a complete turning of the situation happened? That the people that were in authority over them and had them locked up are now taking orders from Paul. That Paul is now operating in authority because of a flow of God's power that affect the situation so dramatically. Now those people are coming and apologizing to him. They're begging him. They're pleading with him. That, that's what God wants to happen in your life. He wants there to be such a flow of power that the things that used to be an authority over you are now under your authority through Christ Jesus. That the things that used to exercise control over you, now you're in control over them to put you in a position of authority and power. To let there be a flow of power in your life that affects you, that sets you free, then puts you in control and makes you a blessing to the people all around you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. It says, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart or from his belly, his innermost being. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Jesus is giving instruction here on how there can be a flow, rivers of living water coming from your innermost being, coming from your belly. Have you ever wanted to have a flow of living water coming from your belly? Ever have a desire? There's something in my life. I've got something to offer people. When I see people hurting, when I see people struggling, man, there's a, a flow of the presence of God in my life that when I try to minister, it's not like I'm dry heaving and just saying empty, hollow words and a, and a pat on the back, but I've got something to minister, life and encouragement and freedom. There's, there's a river of living water flowing out of me for, to be a blessing to the people around me. Have you ever had that desire when you see people struggling, your family members, your children, your spouse, your neighbors, people you work with, that, man, I wish there was something in my life that could make things better for them, that they didn't have to be in that situation Situation. They didn't have to be depressed. They didn't have to be addicted. They didn't have to be lost. They didn't have to be frustrated. They didn't have to be afraid. Does anyone here ever have a desire? I want something to flow through me to make me a blessing to the people around me. I don't know if you've had that desire, but I have that desire. And Jesus is telling us how to arrive at a point where rivers of living water, and he says he's talking about the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit would flow out of you like a river. There's a way to get to that point. If I want a river flowing out of me, Jesus says, what I need to do is drink. I need to come and drink. I need to come and drink. And as I drink, something happens where now it's not just about my, my thirst being quenched. It's not just about me getting full. 
now it's starting to affect people around me. It's exactly, exactly what happened in Acts chapter 16. That something started to flow in the lives of Paul and Silas that didn't just affect them. It started to set other people free. Other people started coming to know Jesus. Other people are coming in the newness of life. Just a quick show of hands if this is of any interest to you. Man, I, 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 and I mean it. You don't, you don't have to read it. I want that. I want a flow. I want the Spirit of God to flow in my life. I want to be able to speak into a situation and know that there's something being communicated besides verbs and, and nouns and just empty language. I want the Spirit of God to saturate every word that I say, every interaction. I, I want to leave people touched with the presence of God, with the Spirit of God. I want to flow. I want a river of living water flowing from my belly. Jesus said, if you want that flow of living water, what you need to do is drink. Well, then the question is, how do I drink? How do I drink? If I need to drink to get the flow, then how do I, how do I drink? You know, there's, there's a parallel between the way that we drink physically and the way that we drink spiritually. So one thing, if you want to take a drink in the natural, then there's a requirement that you've got to open your mouth, right? You can grab that cup and come up here. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is simple. So forgive me for the simplicity of this. Let's say this is you. You're a vessel. You don't like being dry. You, you want to be filled. You want your thirst satisfied and you want to be able to minister to other people. So this is you. Let's say this is the mouth of the cup. That's your mouth. And Jesus wants to fill you. He's not, not trying to make it hard. He's the one giving us the instruction. He's the one that told us it was available in the first place. If he didn't want to fill you, he could have just not said these things. It would have been easy enough just to avoid you always wanting living water. Yeah. So if Jesus wants to fill you, okay, close the mouth, cover it up. It doesn't matter how much he's pouring out. He can pour and pour, but if your mouth is covered up, if your mouth is closed, it's not getting in. Right? I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's simple, but we miss it when it comes to drinking spiritually that you've got to open your mouth. Now, Jesus can pour out. He wants you full. If your mouth is closed, it, it, it doesn't matter. Now, if you open up your mouth, the same thing's taking place, but now he, he can fill you up and cause a, a river of living water. That, that's what he is describing. Thank you very much. And the, the way that we do that is by opening opening our mouth. You see it all the time. People want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. People want a fresh touch. They, and they just stand there, mouth closed, and they wonder why they're not experiencing anything. I guess it doesn't work. I guess it wasn't, God, did, God he didn't want to touch me. I guess maybe next week I saw that person get touched. Maybe there's something wrong with me. We get, get, get into our head about it. No, he can pour all he wants, but if your mouth is closed, you can't drink with your mouth closed. I mean, it's very simple, right? But we miss it. You can't drink if your mouth is closed. And the same thing is true spiritually that you've got to open your mouth. Now, how did this flow? I said there's a sequence here. How did this flow of power begin to affect everything? Their mouths were open, praying and singing hymns of praise. Well, everything is important. The Bible gives us details because the details matter. They were praying, that mattered. They were singing, that mattered. Why mention that the other, what does it matter that the other prisoners were listening, hearing them? It lets us know that this, they, they, it was out loud. Their mouth was open. 
and that started a flow. And I, I can prove it to you from Scripture that the way that we are filled with the Spirit is by opening our mouths. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, and do not be drunk with wine. So he, he's about to talk about being filled with the Spirit. But even as he approaches being filled with the Spirit, what, what example does he use? He's drawing a parallel from being drunk with wine. Physical drinking, right? He's starting there, the way you drink physically, and taking that right into the Spirit because there is a connection. Don't be drunk with wine. How do you drink wine? You're awfully quick with that. <laughs> I know how to drink wine. <laughs> that is right. You, you open your mouth the way that you drink wine. Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know what it means? Being filled, constant fill of flow, which goes back to what Jesus said. I'm drinking and it's coming out. I'm drinking. I'm continually filled, that flow of the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking. How am I filled? How do I keep this flow? Speaking. Speaking. Your mouth is open. You're speaking. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. That we open our mouths, we begin to give thanks, we begin to praise God, we begin to, to talk about how wonderful He is, that we pray, our mouths are open, and that's the way that we drink, that we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want that flow. I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm coming to you, and I just give you thanks, man, you've been so good to me. I give you praise, there, there's nobody like you, and we open our mouths, and that's that's how we drink. And if you've ever experienced it, you, you know, man, it starts a flow, right? You, you start to sense, you, you cross over a certain point, and you know, man, now I'm flowing, I've sensed God's presence. The way you get there is opening your mouth and starting, starting to drink. I want to take time to do exactly that this morning. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.